Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Gila. Um, today, I have Francisca Kosman, and I was really excited to meet her. Recently, we met in um, something called the Podcast Hour, where Amalia um, Feigelson, who was on the podcast recently, put together uh, introducing a bunch of different podcasters from female podcasters. So I got to meet Francisca and her work sounded so interesting. I wanted to hear about her work and we spoke a little bit outside of the podcast on just learning about how she came to do what she does and also with her own complicated relationship with food. And full disclosure, we had a conversation after we recorded that there is some diet culture messages at the end of the episode that Francisca wasn't aware of because she isn't totally informed on the intuitive eating process. So I just wanted to put a trigger warning there. Um, Some clients have pointed out that sometimes guests make comments like that and I don't always stop them. And I just wanted to explain for a minute or two that um, I interviewed lots of different people from lots of different walks of life. And I think lots of people have a lot to share about intuitive eating, health at every size, and just spiritual personal growth in general. And they're not always fully informed on the intuitive eating model, but I still think that we could grow from it. So I'm putting that trigger warning here, but um, um, I don't agree with putting people on diets. I don't agree with shaming people for quote unquote overeating. That's not something that I believe in. And um, I think I'm pretty clear about that here on the podcast, but not everybody's knows about intuitive eating and that's why we're all here, right? So um, if you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast as well as the YouTube channel. Follow me on Instagram at gila.glassberg.intuitive.rd. And if you want to make peace with food, reach out to me um, on my website, www.gila.glassberg.com, and we could um, talk a little bit and get to see if we're a good fit. Okay, enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I've come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Gila. I'm Gila Glassberg, registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. And today I have Francisca Kosman. Hi, Francisca. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I am such a fan of the work that you do because I feel like it's not enough awareness around this topic. And we all pretend like no one has issues with food when there's just so much around this and we don't talk about it enough. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Where do you live and what do you do? So I live in Philadelphia currently, and I am a podcast coach, podcast success coach. I started out as a musician. I play guitar and piano. I started writing my own music and then I 
put out original albums and I built my own studio in my house and I am working toward my last four albums of my 10 album goal currently and I have segued into podcasting to build an audience for my music and then I segued into helping other people build movements audiences brands around what they do through podcasting awesome that's so cool so how did you get into like first I guess your first career with music like you said you play you play piano and guitar yeah, I was classically trained in Moscow, Russia, where I grew up. Oh, wow. Big focus on the arts, a big focus on the discipline of just doing something extracurricular and focusing on that fully. I really enjoyed it. And we had a big department in our school, in our day school, uh, with singing and dancing, performing. And I was part of that dance vocal ensemble where we released albums we performed nationally and internationally and the joke became I didn't get enough solos growing up so I had to become a solo artist oh that's so funny so so when like when did you start learning how to do music like when you were like three five ten like is it in your blood like your parents play music um well I mean kindergarten they already have singing and dancing in your perm plays and stuff Mm -hmm. like that So I started piano lessons at the age of six and then guitar I added on at 12 in a proper music school where I had classical guitar and then piano was a supplemental class. We had choir, solfeggio, music history. Wow. Wow. And exams. We had recitals twice a year or four times a year. And that that was just the music school part. And then we had this, the music in the school as well. And I participated in that probably since I was seven or eight. Wow. And your other siblings, do you have other siblings? Do they also into music? We were all a part of the group. So everyone either danced and sang or one or the other. I have two sisters. So we were all in it together. So My cool. older sister focused on um, visual arts. So she went to art school. My younger sister, I remember taking her to her ballet classes. So she had her focus on dance. And yeah, my mother, that's how she kept us busy. Wow, that's so cool. So then did you always know you wanted to like do it professionally or you just decided like as you got older that like it was it more of like a passion or it was something that you were always going towards as a career? Yeah, so I did want to continue my education, I did understand practically speaking that unless I wanted to be teacher, which I didn't, but I did teach (laughs) privately music students for many years, um, I would have to do other things. I also went to Turo College. They did not have a music program. So I did end up taking- You you, you said you grew up in Moscow. You you came here for college or you came- So I went to seminary in Israel and then to college in America. We all left home post middle school, high school, depending on the child. Mm -hmm. And we knew we would be continuing our education in more mainstream Jewish communities. Um, So I did, I took some classes at the Juilliard evening program when I was at Turo. Wow. And I continued just developing my music, but I understood unless I majored in uh, music 
like in Queens College or Stern also had a music program. That wasn't a professional career I wanted to pursue just because teaching would be the obvious option because performance is not really an option for Shabbos observant Jews. Right, right. Wow. So what did you end up majoring in? Business. Business. Okay, so that makes sense. Marketing and management. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Shout out to Dr. Michelle Tendler, who taught many of the classes I took. That's awesome. So you went. To, so you grew up in Moscow. Your basically your whole life until you went to seminary, and then you went to Turo. Yeah. Wow. I guess you grew up speaking English. I grew up speaking English. My mother's from the states. Yeah. Uh huh. Your English is. You don't really have an accent. I don't even hear your accent. A little bit. Thank you. <laughs> very cool. That's really cool. Um, so then when did you start like producing your own music? So I started when I was already in Moscow. It was really just going from the studios that we were doing albums for the school versus to I had my own money from, you know, classes I w- was teaching privately, guitar or piano, and then getting myself into the studio to work on my own songs. I continued that in Israel and then also in the States. And then eventually I transitioned into being able to do it on my own. Wow. Okay, cool. Or primarily on my own. (laughs) Right. Did you, but did you see yourself doing that? Like when you were in like high school or seminary or college, like, did you see yourself making your own music, putting out your own albums? Like, do you perform live? Like, do you do live performances or you do mostly like, I know you have music videos on YouTube. So I prefer the recording artist track. However, I did perform live many times, a bittersweet experience. (laughs) It's a lot of energy. It's usually nighttime. I'm a morning person. I am exhausted at night. So there were lots of practical reasons I did not want to keep pursuing it. Also, I don't live in such a mainstream Jewish community. So most of the gigs would require travel in addition to that. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't enjoy it enough to want to uh, to want to work so hard. But the recording artist part, I truly enjoy, and it energizes me that I can go into the night and not realize it's night. Oh, um, and I definitely feel like I'm in my zone when I'm in the studio. So you like once you had your own studio or like your own like I guess when you got married or you had it's your right own there. place yeah it's so cool um you were like hey I'm gonna I'm gonna make a studio in my house and I'm gonna work on my music and work on recording albums and is it like or do you sell them or is it mostly so it's all music? on Spotify Apple Music um you know iTunes all the places YouTube did I say YouTube yeah um so yeah it's available I'm coming out with a new remix on, of my Shiru song, this Monte Shabbos, and on our Pesach. So, and I, I'm working on my first English album. So, for me, it's the chase of like learning something new, trying something new, and and really finding my genre and my style. So, did you get any pushback from the community or like from from anyone that like you know this is not like the place for like a from girl or or from like your family like or was it like you were always like welcomed with open arms so mostly I was welcomed with open arms at least from the people that matters there have been way back when pushback on some of my music videos 
you know, how the people were dressed or how the, the dancing was too much or too hip hoppy. So we had some of that. Even now I'll ask, you know, some of my close loved ones if they liked my latest music video and then I'll be like, you tolerated it, right? Um, just because it's not in the spirit, how we envision our Tsnias, you know, role models, where as the way I view the women in Tanakh and in our history, they weren't, you know, women who just sat and hid in the kitchen. They were, you know, fighting. They were out there really being powerful or empowering women doing things that sometimes the men didn't have enough courage to do. Mm-hmm. And so many of our stories end up with the woman saved the day, mm-hmm. like Purim right. and Hanukkah. And I find that very, very empowering to use these role models to sing today because we won't have the men singing about them, right? Right, right. And we don't have to pretend like there's one way to be Tznias or there's one way right. to be Jewish from women. Right. For sure. I, th- I think that's what your music does represent, like from <laughs> at least from what I see, like that there's so many different ways to interpret, you know, a Jewish woman, really. And it's so nice when women do enjoy being in the kitchen or behind the scenes. It's, right. And it, it's it's easier for them. Their life is easier when they prefer it. Right. But that's true. so many really struggle with that today. And I actually, it, it's, yeah. That's funny and it that doesn't say that. say that in the Torah that your mouth has to be shut and you can't say anything right. and you can't sing anything. Right. That's I not actually, a Jewish concept. Right. From like, I'm one of nine, I'm the fourth of nine. And I remember having this conversation with my therapist a lot about like how I'm not one of those types of moms that like to sit on the floor. I'm, I'm not like, I mean, I love my kids with all my heart, you know, but like, I'm not, I, and I happen to like being in the kitchen, but like, <clears throat> I like, you know, I like talking about business or things like that. And like, I remember saying to her, she's like, you know, there's different ways to be a mom. Like, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, really? And she's, and I'm like, well, what if like, what if I was like, what if I was born like 400 years ago and I didn't have a choice and I couldn't just go out and work? She's like, that that doesn't really matter because you weren't born 400 years ago, (laughs) you know? So like, Hashem knows what he's doing, I guess. Like we're all, we all have our own strengths. And I think that that's also like today's generation where like women are becoming so empowered to like do whatever they're they're capable of doing or like that they're good at you know what speaks to them yeah I think that's ultimately the most important thing for us to figure out when are we energized or activated because that's what's important for our kids to see in us mm-hmm. if, if we try to change our nature to like fit some profile of what a mom is supposed to look like, or we're trying to be that mother next door that seems to always have fresh cookies ready on a Friday afternoon, then we'll look, I, kids pick up on everything. They, they mm-hmm. see us, <laughs> they'll, we don't need to explain anything. They, they know everything. So if your child experiences seeing you energized, activated, passionate, you know, purposeful, they will grow up knowing their parent, their mother was, is, has more depth to her. There are things that are important to her instead of just trying to fit a profile and never feel alive. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because I just had this conversation with a client yesterday that um, she was saying, so a lot of times in my practice, I'll I'll teach clients about like the hunger fullness scale. So like, what does hunger feel like? What does fullness feel like? And we'll talk about like, 
like really getting in touch with your physical signs of hunger fullness, right? So they work on that for a little. And then I like to talk about self-care and how if you're lacking in self-care, so food could sort of like become your self-care, right? So like once like they practice the hunger fullness cues and they really know, like, I feel, you know, when I get like rumbling in my stomach or in my head, like everyone's so different, they're able to like identify that. And they're like, okay, I know I'm eating because I'm not, not from hunger. Like they could identify that. So there's something else, right? So she was, we were talking about like things that fuel her and she was just like, so not had never explored that. <laughs> like, because she's like, my rule as a mother is to take care of my children. And I was like, I wonder where you picked that up. Like, I wonder where you got that belief system from. And she's like, that's what, that's how my mother raised us. You know, that's a woman's role. And she's like, but I really like to paint, you know? She's like, I just thought like, you just paint as a kid, like for fun. Like you can't do that as an adult. And I was like, right. Like that's your beliefs. That's a belief system that you've picked up. Right. So like, I always say like, does that serve you? Does that belief system serve you? So like, of course there are mothers who are fueled and passionate and we all should be passionate about raising our kids, of course, but like, there's so much outside of, outside of just like mothering our children, cleaning for our children, cooking for our children. And like that fuels us, that makes us better mothers, you know, like that ignites us. For sure. So, so tell me about the podcast. How did that start? So for anyone who already heard my story so many times, I'll just repeat it once again, but it was right after my shoe. That's so I'm going to, I'll give you, I won't spare any details. Okay, I was, I released my Shiru music video and then the Atatakum music video. It was a bunch of thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars in deep. And that, that's when it hit me. I'm not going to get what I want out of the music mm-hmm. the way I'm going now. And the, the Jewish female market is not giving me what I want in terms of its reception and viewership and interest. And there's the, there isn't a market, or if there is, they don't know about it. They're unaware of it. And Rivka Harris, I consider her a dear friend and mentor, you know, told me to start a podcast. Um, and I was in a place where I was like, I'm done with music. I'm just done investing in this, trying. Were you, you making know, I- money or were you just losing money? Yeah, exactly. I was losing money. (laughs) That that will make you, um, your passion feel like a depression. So I started the podcast as a way to interview other women in the arts and entertainment, figure out what they're struggling with, what's their journey like. I just assumed everyone else who was posting on Instagram was successful. When I mean say successful, I mean financially successful. Okay. Um, What I did come to learn is that most of the women were doing this out of passion also not making money from their music videos per se, maybe from some performances, but it wasn't something that was supporting them. And a lot of them were also very frustrated. Mm-hmm. Over the years, we built a community, an audience, a market there. And then we pushed enough boundaries for people to start putting out music videos and getting um, you know, high paying gigs who live who are in mainstream communities in Lakewood and Brooklyn and to be considered totally normal in the community, not something that's very controversial or rebellious. Mm -hmm. And I take, I, I, 
I definitely feel like I participated in pushing the boundaries to create that sense of normalcy and acceptance around women putting out music and music. Mm -hmm. For sure. So that was your, so basically you were working in the field of making Jewish female music videos and you weren't making any money, you were losing money. And I guess your expectation was that like, it would make you money. Like, I don't know if I had any expectations to begin with. It wasn't a business model. Um, I, you know, it's not like I had a strategy and the strategy failed. It was just like, I'm going to do this. I'll get famous gigs will come or something will come Mm -hmm. and it will pay for it. It will make itself, it will pay for itself. Um, but it doesn't happen on its own. You usually have to go out and create something around it for, so some people have merch, others have, you know, recording studios. Others teach vocals or music instruments, and they have supplementing businesses that support their music brand. So you mean most people don't make money just by making music videos, or you mean most from women don't? Yeah, music videos, you get a royalty, but it's not enough to pay for the music video unless you are, you know, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande. Um, Yeah. Got it. But, but, but performances, performances can performances pay for things, money. So it's but like, they're not going to pay your bills. They'll maybe pay for your musical projects. Really? Yeah. That's interesting because I went to a performance this year by a Jewish um, artist, and sh- she was really amazing. And there were so many women there. I was, I, I would, I would, I guess she has to pay everyone involved in the music, you know, in the show. But I, I can't imagine she didn't make a lot of money from it. But I guess there's. So and much she could have, but the cost of putting on a show and paying your dancers, your lighting, the venue, the tickets, the marketing, whatever can be involved. And then she needed her backing tracks. Maybe she had to pay for the music mm-hmm. and all those years of investing. So even if she does make a couple of thousand dollars that night, mm-hmm. compared to the money and the time and everything she's invested over the time to put on a 40 minute performance, where she's splitting half of that money with a bunch of people right. or whatever it is. It, it's not paying for, ele- for her electric bill or for her kid's tuition. That's what right. I mean. Right. It might, it might pay for her, you know, next gown or her next laser appointment, wow. <laughs> something extra, even wow. if it does, but usually the music, you know, going into the studio, let's say you don't write your own music and you need to buy a song. You need to license a song mm-hmm. before you even have the song. You're already spending money. Right. Wow. Wow. That doesn't sound very lucrative. But that's something I learned by asking Mm -hmm. dozens of other women in this industry, because just me on my own journey, I I just thought I wasn't doing well. Right. But then when I learned that's what what the industry is like, it was very helpful. But we did build an interest around Jewish music and there is a community. There's a Kalisha space now. There's so many women pr- providing and doing the music. There are a lot of women interested in the music and enough people to hire people. So I definitely feel like we've built a movement here. And that's very fulfilling to know right. that happened. So your goal for the podcast was really to, to gain from your, from your um, interviewees, to learn from, you learn from them, they learn from you, and you put it out there for any other struggling artists type of thing. So yeah, I didn't have those goals going in, but we ended up building a movement. We and en- I ended up doing research, building relationships, 
building a database of you do that learning. like you just had to like that's also takes research like how did you I guess you learned on the job or like you were did you have a mentor how did you learn how to do that how did I learn how to do a podcast no how did you learn how, like <laughs> how kind did, of like a, it was a strategy no, I right? knew some other artists and then right. you meet artists and then they'll tell you about other ones or new ones are popping up and then you right. see their new music video so it was very organic I started out two interviews a month I did that for about two years until I upped it to every week and then I branched out into Jewish taboo topics right so that's a whole other your podcast definitely took a turn so how did that how did that come to be um so I had a a little transition I added on a series called no more silence where I interview survivors of abuse I just woke up one day and decided I wanted to do that really Yes, that's exactly how it happened. I asked, I talked to a lawyer because I didn't want to be, you know, sued or if people are bringing up allegations or anything like that, I, I needed to make sure I'm protected. And then I started looking for guests, which unfortunately wasn't so hard. People would come on. I gave an, anom- an, an option to stay anonymous and that for me, it was very obvious. I was giving women who didn't have a voice in the Jewish Orthodox community a voice. And I was giving people who were, who went through abuse and survived. I was giving them a voice. And then eventually, and that was super successful. And it was so fulfilling because it was helping so many people, the guests, as well as the audience members, even if the audience members aren't abused, they are raising children. They want mm-hmm. awareness and education around it. Yeah. I was doing that way before it was popular <laughs> to talk about it. And then I started getting requests to talk about other topics as well. And it just became giving people a voice and a platform to talk about things. We don't have a space anywhere else to talk. So was it really like one day you woke up and you were like, I have a platform and people listen to me and I should share other people's stories or something went on in your personal life or in like the Jewish community that like got you thinking about that? It's probably a combination because I do have that personality that people do share mm-hmm. whatever's going on with them. And um, this topic, so many topics I that I cover on the podcast are very sensitive and I people who know me also know I I'm very unfiltered I'm very comfortable talking about uncomfortable topics which makes people sharing right comfortable enough to share around me and and one day just clicked like wow I have this podcast people are really comfortable around me let's try to combine that and do some good with it but did you also put like, do you still interview artists on the podcast? Is it like, is it both? I actually have an episode with Esther Freeman coming out soon. I've been uh, waiting to release that for a little bit. And oddly enough, I've invited, I'm on this chat with a bunch of Jewish singers and very talented artists. There's an open invitation. I've invited Bracha Jaffe on, I've invited on a bunch of other singers. It's, it's hard to pin them down. Um, they have to cancel things come up so I'm I I would love to have any artists who 
who want to talk about their journey. But I, I've exhausted the part where I was getting my natural guests booked and recorded without it um, compromising my workflow. Let's, mm-hmm. let's put that. Mm-hmm. There's a combination of passion and work that goes into right. this. So right. once it's off balance, I have to pivot a little bit and feel, you know, tune into whatever is flowing into mm-hmm. my space. Right. So did you feel like you gained a lot from the, the series of interviewing other artists? Like, did you feel like that really helped you learn about the industry? Yes, absolutely. I felt like I, I positioned myself in the market, which is something I really wanted. I built a lot of relationships because after we're done interviewing, we would continue our conversation and then the relationship. And, and that's very valuable in this industry just being able to talk to each other, support each other, ask questions. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then I was able to give them a platform to talk about their journey, which was so nice for me because I was ultimately giving back and sharing my platform with others. And it made it much more, it made it, it was like an extension to the music I created. Mm-hmm. And then you said like one day you woke up and you're like, hey, like this fits my personality. This fits my, my mission to interview people who no more silence who had been abused and you were able to really like shed light on their story and I guess the community story and that was well received and then you said people were reaching out to you about other taboo topics so how did they just like dm you on instagram or email you or like about anything like any a topic that that they were personally going through or a community member or family member Absolutely. So like that, it would happen over Shabbos meal or another social gathering. And I'd get introduced to people and then it would be like, oh, why, why don't you interview, talk about this? And then um, I consider myself an activist. You know, music was the first thing I was passionate enough to do something publicly about, which is uh, moving and changing the boundaries or our, our, our ideas about the halachic boundaries for women and singing. And then it moves on. I talk about get refusal and the Aguna crisis and Shaduchim and, you know, so many other topics that are either shameful or uncomfortable um, or need a voice. And I, I feel the sense of mission to continue talking about these things. What, for one, I don't feel like my kids are threatened to be thrown out of school. I don't live in a community where that's an issue. And on the other hand, I have this deep desire to, to, to do something that's meaningful that, that I can bring to the table. And you've gotten like a lot of positive feedback on like the topics, the taboo topics that you're able to share on your podcast. Yeah. And, and that's really how I've been able to do it for so long. If I wouldn't be getting yeah. the feedback and I always tell my audience, you know, thanks to you, we're growing. Thanks to you, this is continuing because I, I work with a lot of podcasters and they launch, they do a few episodes and then it dies out. It's, it's very hard to continue putting in so much work. It is. If you feel like it's not being received. Right. So the, the proof to what I'm doing is doing something is the fact that I'm still doing it and we're hitting five years in November. So wow. I'm just so deeply honored. Wow. That's amazing. Where do you see the podcast going? Like, do you see it going that people just reach out to you for things that they, they there's, that there's a need and you're able to fill that or do you have like another sort of well, my other goal? thing is my little antenna I have on 
And whenever I speak to people or meet people or I see, a, you know, something happening in the world, I take that as a cue to take that on and start talking about that more in depth or finding guests. Uh, very often there's a topic I feel like is happening. For example, when I went through and I experienced my miscarriage, I felt like I should talk about it. Didn't mm -hmm. talk about it right away, but I did use my podcast to find other people to talk about their experiences or bring more awareness around it to women and men and just use, you know, whatever I see going on either in my world or people around me to bring awareness. I'm really sorry to hear about that. Thank you. But I, I've recovered since, but I, I can definitely access that pain. Right. For sure. No, I think that it's a really interesting balance of like sharing and oversharing like on the, on social media, because like there's so much that we gain from sharing the person who's sharing and the people who like feel seen and heard from other people's experiences. At the same time, there's so much like oversharing, you know what I mean? Like on social well, my media. My balance was, I put out a music video that I dedicated to my loss. Wow. It was a, but it was around the time I was having my next baby. So right. it took a long time wow. and I didn't talk about it publicly for a while after, but then once I felt comfortable enough, then it didn't feel like oversharing because it felt right. like I wasn't like I had Processing. something positive to add. <laughs> right. 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 I feel like Brene Brown talks about this, about like what does she say? I can't remember. I have to look it up. Like processing versus, I don't remember. Like there's a, there's like sometimes people use the internet to like process their pain. And sometimes they really have done that in like privacy or whatever, however they want to. I mean, I'm not saying anything's wrong with it. I'm just saying everyone like does whatever they're comfortable with, but I'm just so saying whatever I'm going through now, people won't know about it. Right, right, right. You know, for another right. year, potentially right. With, right. Through, my, through my content. Yeah. Right. No, but I feel like that's also like definitely coming from a place of like an artist, you know, like artists, like whether people are like drawing art or making music as art, um, it's very much a part of that, like being able to share, you know, being able to share your music or share your, your drawings or share your writings. That's like so much a part of the art, no? Yeah. Trying to make something meaningful out of something personal. Right. Uh, did you read, did you ever read the book by David Kessler, the, like the five stages of grief? No, but I know a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, he added like a sixth stage, like making meaning. So it's like really interesting. Yeah. I actually, yeah. I don't know. You'll, you'll look up my content when, you know, after this and we'll continue our relationship. But I also like, I lost my mother a few years ago and I, I didn't like really share on social media for a few months, maybe a year. And like, I remember when I shared, like I was ready to share, you know, and it, it was very healing. Like so many people reached out, like I didn't know, or like, I also suffered a loss or thank you for sharing, you know, thank you for being open about your pain. And actually I just did an interview, the interview before you, I did on the topic of IFS, internal family systems, which is like a therapeutic modality. Um, and the person who I interviewed, she referred to was just saying that like, that like in a lot of communities, like we're all just pretending like life is great, you know, like life is perfect. And like, it's so exhausting. Like we, we need space to be able to talk about like the pain. Obviously we don't have real. to talk about it all. Yeah. Be real. Like we're all struggling humans, you know? Yeah. 
So I do, I, I really do appreciate your podcast in that way. And I've listened to a lot of episodes already on people sharing about their own journeys. Thank you. Really so cool. Much. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's like really, really important that the community has that safe space, you know, and they're able to talk about it anonymously or share their names if they want to. Yeah. So totally whatever you're comfortable with, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your relationship with food because we spoke about that a little bit before we started recording. And I mean, that's like definitely my passion. So like, if you would, would you feel comfortable to share like where you're, sure. where you're, where you're holding in your relationship with food journey? So it doesn't feel like an, a question I could answer in three sentences, but in short, I've always had a complicated relationship with being able to feed myself. So planning, executing the eating and being happy and satisfied with the decisions, with the experience. And it's something I've been both struggling and working on, on and off for my whole life. Your whole life since you were like two, since you were like a baby. So my earliest memories around food are probably middle school, where I wouldn't eat the school lunch at in Russia and anyone who's American or Israeli will be like, of course you didn't want to eat, you know, the, the fish soup and the, and the, <laughs> whatever I would serve, which yeah. was a very wholesome meal. Right. If I think back now, what my kids are getting at hot lunch, which is, you know, the unhealthiest, you know, C-R-A-P, but she's mm -hmm. eating it and she's happy. And I know how picky my kids are. So at least they're eating and I don't have to worry about it. On the other hand, we had soup, we had hot meals, which were like mashed potatoes and ground meat, all these different things every day. And, you know, it was subsidized by, by the state and the school, like it was completely free to the kids. And, and most um, of the kids ate it. Like it wasn't like everyone basically ate it at one point. I, so I would eat chocolate instead of lunch mm -hmm. at one point I was running the school canteen during lunch lunch was 15 minutes we had 15 minutes for the boys lunch 15 minutes for the girls lunch because we had separate lunches mm -hmm. I ran the canteen during both lunches so my food <laughs> wasn't a priority to me um and um it was always hard for me to decide you know what to eat when it was time to eat and a lot of regret around my choices and not just it wasn't necessarily calorie based it was like my experience wasn't as enjoyable as I would have wanted it to be like food was a big letdown very often you thought you were going to enjoy it more and then when you would eat it you'd be like ew that was gross it or felt like a waste of a meal a waste of a waste <laughs> yeah do you think that came from like society or like messages in your home that like food should always be like taste amazing or like where do you think you uh... so with doing lots of therapy and thinking I think I I I used food as my tool to release as much control as I could or take as much control over my life as I could so if I was too overwhelmed with school and music school and all the other things I was occupied with um, food was something I used to overly control, overly expect a lot of pleasure from, and perfection. 
And you're Whereas your other areas of my life, I was l- able to let go of the perfection level or the expectations. And your other sisters didn't struggle with that? So my older nice. sister is vegan since she's 12. Mm-hmm. So she, I tried being vegetarian for a few years. I don't remember when it ended. Clearly, I didn't make too much of a moment out of it. Mm-hmm. She's still vegan. My right. younger sister, I mean, besides for having an average relationship with food, like every other person I know, mm-hmm. she seems to be great managing her steaks and yeah. all other foods. And I don't think she re- has any like food restrictions or allergies or aversions. And now, like, could I ask how old you are? Or how many I'm years? 29. 29. Okay. So like now where do you, like, where do you stand on your, on your eating, like your food aversions? Like, are you able to challenge yourself to eat foods that you don't love? Like, are you like most days, like you're not able to eat so much or you're still struggling with getting more pleasure from food? So I was able to categorize or at least identify those issues. And I've been categorizing foods into separate categories and numbering them on a scale from one to 10, how tolerable they are for me or not. So I can, the ARFID. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm doing treatment for that. That's what I was thinking when we spoke like last time, because people don't really know much about that eating disorder, ARFID, but it's really just like many, many, many food aversions. And it usually does happen in childhood. And a lot of it is just exposure therapy. Right, exactly. Um, So I have like textures and portions and proportions um, and how it feels and how it looks and how it smells. There's so many elements to be able to enjoy one meal. And then I, on top of that, I have this um, extra element. If it's done by somebody else in an appetizing way, I eat it no problem. Obviously, like if somebody makes me food and I have no idea where it came from, and for all I know, they live in the forest, mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't want to eat that food. But most of the time, if I know it's coming for me, not knowing how the food was prepared or seeing how the food was prepared is much easier to eat the food. So any packaged food or any, you know, restaurant food or, um, you know, grocery pre-made food, it's much easier for me to eat versus something I prepare myself. So that's the extra element. Even if I would enjoy a meal, if I made it, it's harder for me to even eat it. I've heard that many times, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have a way around that? Like, are you able to buy food, like pre-made food a lot from the grocery store? Are you able to have other people in your house prepare the food? So, yeah, it's, we're using all the combinations possible so we could get through every day. But I, I don't feel like I have a system yet that works. Right. It still right. feels yeah. like trial and error, still feels like, um, but, you know, I, I, I don't go to sleep hungry. Right. I, we figure something out. Right. It's just very frustrating that I have to deal with this hard work on a daily right. basis so many right. times. For sure. It's super frustrating because you have to eat all day no matter what and it's sad because food could really give people so much enjoyment and to have like so much anxiety around it could be really really like frustrating and decrease your quality of life so I have seen this many times you know I don't so much judgment also like I'm an adult I figured everything else out 
like how to do as judging yourself self-judgment yeah there's self-judgment of like why can I figure this out other people much younger than me are in dorms and feeding themselves and it's not even a thing and I'm struggling with it so understanding it acknowledging it and sort of having more compassion Mm -hmm. was another element that I'm you know implementing yeah I mean ARFID is a real thing so like it's not like you chose that you know, to be struggling with that. So it, it's not really your fault. And like, it's definitely one of those things that you look around and you're like, oh, they're not struggling with it at all. Like, why can't I get it under control? But it's like, that's just like the nisayon that you were handed in life, you know, even though like, it's so easy to judge ourselves and be harsh with ourselves. But that's so much of this work is like grace and self-compassion. Like that, that just works better anyways. You know, like the more we like beat ourselves up, like the worse off we are. Yeah. Were you like forced to help with food in the kitchen as a kid? Like, did you have to be around food more than you wanted to do as a kid? I'm just curious. No. So I did have the sous chef job around Yantif. Mm-hmm. My sister would, you know, take on, she loved cooking and baking and she would take on recipes and I would just be the sous chef and I'd peel things. And um, so I, I, I did bake. I, made you know the Shabbos chocolate cake every Thursday for a few years which I was happy to do baking is easier than cooking um and it's not easier it's easier for me to eat what I baked than easier Mm -hmm. to eat what I cooked um what was your question if anything I remember my mother prioritizing my music lessons over me helping around Arafiantif because there was enough people in the kitchen making yantif and I had a you know a class or whatever it is and my mother said you know she's whatever 13 there's enough help we have everything under control she should go to her class instead of missing it did you have trouble with like textures and smells and stuff like that outside of food like were you a sensory kid like not wanting to touch certain things not wanting to smell certain things I I can't think of not that you remember. I mean, smells for sure. If you get in a subway and it smells, I would right. not appreciate that. Right. But I didn't have. <laughs> I I've seen some other more extreme reactions to other sensory issues, and right. you no, know, I, I do not think I had that. Right. So interesting. I I guess it's just helpful for people to hear. Like, if you take the mind. guitar and you like play it in a you know if you touch the the strings horizontally back and forth that sound irritates my teeth a lot right the, like, like the chalk, chalk yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but that's if common. i if i ate in foil a sandwich that was covered in foil and i would bite off the foil would definitely destroy the meal for me right right yeah yeah it's very interesting i feel like people don't really know about arfid so like it's interesting just to shed light that could actually be like a really cool topic on your podcast you know because um like you said in the beginning that so many people aren't talking about this. I think more people are talking about it. Like it definitely is becoming like much less of a taboo in the community. At least that's what I see. So they're talking about it, but I don't see so much change culturally because right. we're still making massive kiddishes and we're going into like Yantif season where the Seder starts at 9 p.m. You're not eating until 11 or 12. Right. For somebody who's on a diet or trying to watch their weight, you know, you'll Pesach, can be a very resentful experience religiously because you're like, I'm doomed and there's no way I can, you know, even if you have your discipline and you eat the amount of matzah you have to for matzah and then for korech and then you eat the 
Afikomen, even without a massive Shulchan Aruch, you've overeaten what you needed to, and it's late at night, then it stretches out your stomach. Next day, you're even hungrier because you ate so much mm-hmm. um, undigestible food. <laughs> I hear you. Well, I, I guess from my angle, like I talk about intuitive eating, which is much more about like making peace with food because there's so much like diet culture restriction type of talk in our community, not just in the firm community. I mean, it's everywhere. It's it's culturally in the entire world. So So yeah, there's that combined with like religious, like Jewish law, you know, like just, there's so much, there's fleshics and mochics. There's not eating before Kiddush or between, um, you know, right. There's so much fast days, right. That all needs to be dealt with, with, with a rub, you know what I mean? Like just from somebody, like I do work with some clients with eating disorders, disordered eating. Like I, it's really one of like the most important pieces is that like to ask your Shilas about like your specific situation, just like with, you know, met certain medications people have to take on Pesach or whatever. That's the same level of importance when you're struggling with your relationship with food and yeah. like that interferes with um, your religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, this was really, really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think that it's helpful for people to hear like about your food issues. Like I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I know like a lot of my clients are struggling with similar or different, but still food issues nonetheless. And like, I guess that's part of your brand and your podcast that like you're really trying to shed light on the human experience (laughs) and your story was really cool. And your music videos are awesome and just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for coming on. Have a great day and a beautiful Pesach. And you too. Okay. Thank you. So there you have it. I really wanted to share Francisca's story and I also wanted to hear about her own struggles with food. Um, I also find that that Francisca's story to just be inspiring for all of us to kind of like follow your dreams. And even when you do follow your dreams and it doesn't seem to be working or, or my business coach always says you're throwing spaghetti at the wall and nothing's sticking, like don't give up. There's so many different venues and avenues to help people and to make money and to show up in alignment with your values. So that's what I took away from this episode. And I thought it was really, really interesting to hear Francisca's whole life story. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at Gila Glassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.